0: I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Hmm. Attack ships on fire off the shore of lion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark in ten hours a day. All those moments
1: Hey guys, this is Patrick, and uh, before we get started today, we just wanted to take a moment, even though we know that you're hearing this in the future, just to commemorate the fact that we lost Ruckerhauer Hauer today, um, on July 24th, 2019, and it's something that is really in our mind and in our hearts, and, um, and we just wanted to express condolences to his wife and to his family and to everybody who worked with him the starfish foundation. Um, he was an immense part of all of our lives and, uh, in his, his absence is really felt, and you'll probably hear it tonight on this episode, but we wanted to record anyway. And we wanted to take a moment to just, um, to thank Rutger for his legacy and for changing our lives.
2: This will be a day that I won't forget for sure. Um, as we discussed, uh, earlier today, a lot of, we've experienced a lot of deaths of, of, people that we know that have been in film uh, films that we love um, people that obviously we've never met or probably never will meet, but there's something different about Rudger Hauer um, or more specifically, there's something indifferent different about um, this character that resonates deeper than any character that I, that I mean, that I can't even imagine. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I I'm a little bit speechless, to be honest with you, but I also felt like it was important that we kind of uh, do a timestamp and uh, give honor to this man, to his life, to everything that he's his, he stood for, his AIDS charity, um, but just really the poetry of his life um, and how so much of who he was as a character in terms of the Blade Runner films resonates with everyone, not just the hardcore fans.
3: Uh, definitely a sad day for all of us and and for all of uh, Rutgers fans. I'd like to you know th- thank him and his family. Um, and uh, we'll we'll be putting up an episode soon and recording on on his life and on the very famous uh, Roy Batty character that he he brought so much to as we know from the history of the of the film and and onto the screen um, from you know the original Philip K. Dick character to what he brought onto the screen and how much he personalized it. So um, you know and uh, to to wrap this up but he he, I think he taught all of us a lot of lessons on really how you should live your life and what life is about so um, yeah we'll always remember him for that
1: Are you looking to stand out from the crowd? Are you looking for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up for the shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special. The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law.
2: Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am joined by my regular co-host, Patrick Green, and Dan Ferlito. This is another part of our series, a 700 layer cake. And this is one of two episodes that we are dedicating to Vangelis. And this is an episode where this first episode we wanted to kind of go through his life a little bit. Patrick's gonna go a little bit more into detail. I will probably give more of an overview of his life or in terms of his early life. Very interesting character. Um, some of the most interesting parts of his life or uh, in terms of his professional career, especially as it relates to Blade Runner, um, are some of my favorite things about him, to be honest with you, They're the very unorthodox ways of kind of creating music, which is one of the reasons why I love him so much. Ben Gellis was born on March 29th, 1943. By the way, one day before my birthday. Ooh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and his same year too. Same year. Actually... <laughs> During the war. <laughs> you set yourself up for oh, that. Man, oh, that, low, a wrong for that. <laughs> oh man, you
2: wrong for that.
1: Oh man, I know you. You almost fought in World War II, Jody. You were really a, a, a baby, a baby platoonist.
2: <laughs> What's interesting about him is something that I never knew until. Not that I didn't know, but you just know him as Vangelis. You don't know him as, as anything else. And, of course, for years I was saying his name as Vangelis just because, you know, Anglo-Saxon-American. Um, but his name is not Vangelis. What is his name, Dan? Uh, I'm
3: going to give us my best shot here. But uh, Evangelos Odysseus Papatanasio is probably somewhat close to the greek but i don't speak greek so just disclaimer
2: yeah it's actually a really beautiful name and so as you can it's mm-hmm. breathtaking you can tell that he found a version vangelis is obviously found in his first name and he made a, a name that was easier for people to say um but this uh,
1: supposedly he says evangelos so it is a soft g when he says it oh interesting and i think that's, I think that's part of why for the first like 20 episodes of this podcast i kept saying Vangelis. because i think here's the thing I grew up only seeing it, right? I never heard anybody say it out loud. So like my whole life, I thought it was Vangelis. And then we got hate mail about it. Right. Which was understandable because I'm a professional composer. I should know better than to Yeah, but name. you're
2: also human. I'm sure. I am,
1: well, not technically human. And so I fixed <laughs> it. But yeah, Dan, that was beautiful. Thanks. So, it,
2: it is confusing.
3: Uh, Vangelo in Italian is gospel, which obviously his name means to to evangelize, to bring the good news. Um, and so in a, in a lot of Latin languages, that would be a soft G, but it's interesting that in his right. art name, it's hard. But anyways. That Gua is a very interesting. And
2: <laughs> uh, Vangelis had a very interesting early life. Um, and we'll I kind of start off in terms of his musical life. He started several, well, I wouldn't say several, at least a couple of bands when he was in high school and those musical explorations sort of was what was leading him into a fuller experience um later he would end up with john anderson of yes i believe wasn't that what john anderson i I believe he was in there yeah and they were together for a a while producing albums and it was sort of by happenstance that van gelis ended up making scores for films
3: And if if you read his bio, because, you you know, you were talking about his high school, um, his high school age work uh, earlier, but he did start playing music at the age of four. So he had an interest and started, you know, messing around on a piano at home at a very, very young age.
2: And it wasn't just him messing around. He was surrounded by music. He was Mm -hmm. surrounded by a lot of classical music. So it was something he was always steeped in. It wasn't anything where he was like, oh, hey, I love music. It was a part of his life, it was a part of his family. Um, it was very important to his parents.
0: When did you first become aware of your need to communicate through music? Um, since I remember myself, of course, the first time that, uh, that I understood sound, every object, everything was related by sound, nature, everything. Uh, even people, when I see somebody, I can, I can see the sound of this person. The, or the melody, because melody is after the, after the sound. And, uh, I mean, even now it's impossible to, 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 to see an object when I go and walk in the shop or whatever. Um, I always have to touch and, 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 and hit it. Then I know immediately the character of that object I, I i know something that i can't explain i can't put it in words but but i know more than my eyes can 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 tell what i think is really interesting
1: about van gogh's early childhood is that a lot of elements emerged that i think would define his artistry and his work style um in, in a lot of the years of his life to come so when he was 4 he was playing on the piano like you know, a lot of four-year-olds do and making crazy noises and having fun with it. And his parents tried to sign him up for formal lessons to be able to read music, to be able to take, you know, formal um, piano lessons and things like that. And he did not take to it very well. He didn't enjoy um, having to like learn to read. So he would kind of fake his way through and get called out on it. And um, and he decided that that just wasn't really for him. Like a, a rigorous formal education was not what he wanted musically. And he was more concerned with things like timbre. So when I say timbre, for those of you listening who don't know what I'm talking about. I was just about to ask. um, (laughs) Well, good thing I got an explanation. (laughs) So timbre is the tone color of an instrument. It's what it sounds like, you know? So when, for example, uh, like the reasons that our voices sound different is because the ways in which they resonate create different patterns of sound that influence the air. And then we hear that pattern of sound influencing the air. So the reason an oboe sounds different from a clarinet, for example, even though their mechanisms are similar the, you know the both vibrating reed instruments is that they they have different tone colors they have different timbres so um what he would do a lot of the time is he would take a piano and then he would open it up and he would dump screws and toys into it and things like that and then he would play and when he would play the screws and toys would bounce on the on the strings of the piano which is actually a technique that it's a modernist composing technique called prepared piano work which was pioneered by john cage it's like a a pretty famous thing but for a four-year-old kid to be doing it that's pretty that's pretty amazing and it shows the reason i'm kind of uh you know already derailing this episode to talk about it is it shows what his priorities were He's very imaginative. He was very concerned with the sonic possibilities of the instrument that he was doing and pushing it in ways that were unorthodox. And I think that's why when he found synthesizers, two decades after this almost, he was uh, really great at drawing out of them compositional possibilities that many other people didn't think of because for the most part, they were either really avant-garde or they were thought of as kind of toys or they were thought of as proxies for orchestras, you know? But what Van said was, they're not that. They are, oh, they are gateways to worlds of sonic exploration, and you can see when he was a little kid, he was already doing that.
3: Yeah, from uh, generally from the, because he again he just kind of famously doesn't give out a lot of interviews, doesn't want people to know about his personal life. For so from the few comments I was able to find online, um, uh, generally speaking, he definitely seems to sort of like musical instruments are. I think his attitude is that they're, like you said, a gateway and they're a, um, yeah, they're they're a gateway, a doorway to kind of what's inside of him and his passion and, and, and all of that, which I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure a lot of passionate artists could say that, but you can really tell that he's trying to just find um, the exact representation of either his emotion or the emotion of the project that he's working on and everything else is secondary. Like you said, uh, the, the classical education, the, the specific instrument, whether it's, synth- it's a synthetic instrument or natural, you know, uh, he doesn't care about that and to him. It's all sound. And he just wants, you know, and like, it reminds me of, um, people like Tom York, who uh, of course Vangelis doesn't sing, Uh, at least not in his modern music, but he does have a lot of voice and operatic singing in in some of his pieces. And so I I can see it all being used as instruments, really. Totally,
2: totally. I would describe Vangelis as well as someone who creates film with music because he approaches music so differently. And as we discuss offline a bit, uh, he's a man who doesn't read music, but you can see even in his earlier work, he sees it in his head. You can, like his music is, is the most filmic music I've ever heard. And when I say that, I don't mean like, oh yeah, it would be a great soundtrack. It, I don't mean that. What I mean is the music sounds like movies.
1: I want to take a, take a second also and unpack a little bit of about what you're saying about him playing in bands, because I think that that's also part of his musical development. Early on, he plays in a lot of prog rock projects, which was sort of what was on vogue at the time. And that's why when he gets to Aphrodite's child, which was his first big kind of breakout thing. Um, which is when he was 25 and he was in Paris, um, the sound of Aphrodite's Child, which again had hit singles, that was it was progressive rock, which of course was also the genre that Yes fits into, right? That was the milieu that he was operating in. So it's easy for us, I think, looking back now, because most people when they think Vangelis, they think of Blade Runner, they think of Chariots of Fire, or they think of Cosmos, right? There's a few things that we think of as like, well, this is what he sounds like. But what we're hearing is one slice of this guy's career. There was a whole career before that, and there's been a whole career after that. And it's all a continuum, just like it is with any artist, you know? Uh, And I think his progressive rock stuff set him up well to um, work with patterns of sound and to work with blocks of repeating sound and to work with uh, non-traditional time signatures. So making things feel like a little bit unsteady, but still very rhythmic. I think a lot of the things that he was doing when he was gigging in these bands was setting him up for that. But I also think, um, you know, there's a reason why he gravitated away from playing in bands, which I I guess I can go ahead and, and touch on. And he said this in interviews. He was tired of making commercial music that he felt wasn't his. So when Aphrodite's child broke up, he immediately went back into studio work, right? So as he was gigging around between the ages of like 20 and 25, he was doing these studio projects, these small, he was scoring some small Greek films. He was, uh, he was augmenting the scores of pre-existing films that other, other composers had written. He was like somebody who would, who would be called in to help score, you know, a small documentary or something. And he was getting really good at learning the value of production of learning the value of um, performing his own music on record, because that's something that's pretty rare. Um, And, and these were all feeding into what would eventually become Blade Runner. Yeah, I remember, uh,
3: I don't remember the timeline right now, maybe Patrick, it's in your notes, but, uh, when his, his, uh, animal documentary stuff, um, the one, the, uh, he, he scored some of Jacques Cousteau's, under uh, underwater documentaries, which is really cool. And, and, you know, so, I, and to be honest, I've probably watched some of those and didn't even know it was Vangelis cause I was little or whatever, but, um, I, I love that aspect of it, the, the, uh. The natural documentary with his music, which which is uh, really amazing, and he's done a couple other famous ones.
1: Yeah, well, Jamie was just listening to one. He sent us a, a screenshot, right? Uh, hymna from the Upper Savage. Uh, uh, Sauvage, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because listening to that, you might not know it was Van Gelder. And, and this is what I'm saying is that like he is not just a style. He is a musician who has like gone through different phases of a style, and because of that, if you listen to any isolated album of his. You might not necessarily know what you're listening to as Vangelis without looking it up. You know, I, like in preparation for this episode, I listened to a lot of his early solo stuff, which I really don't listen to very frequently. And the amount of change that it goes through is, is pretty remarkable. I think there's a really, a really distinct shift that happens in his music, if it's okay if I, if I go here. So he goes to London in the 70s. He gets a recording contract with RCA. He has money. He has time. He is a professional composer. He's done some really good projects. he's done sauvage, he's done all this stuff. Um, and because of that he's able to, to build, build a studio which he calls his laboratory, which is Nemo Studios. Um, and it's no longer there unfortunately. but I looked for it when I was in England with uh, Robin Bunce recently. Um, it's of course it's not there anymore, but, but it's actually like near Buckingham Palace. It's on Oxford Street. It's like a very central location where it, you know it, it was. Um, and it was on the second floor of a schoolhouse building. And it was just loaded to the brim with everything that he was interested in at the time. It's like he he finally had the, the money and the bandwidth to like buy all the stuff that he'd been wanting to use. So he bought like dozens, literally dozens of emulators and, th- and synthesizers, you know, ribbon synthesizers, analog synthesizers. He bought, um, millions of percussion instruments, chimes, gongs, all of these, just these wacky sounds. Cause he was just collecting this stuff, you know, um, he had pianos in there. And so when we hear his music that, he, that emerges during this period, this is 1975, so the first album that he does after he gets the studio set up is Heaven and Hell. And so if anybody wants to like listen you know, to his back catalog, you'll notice a really distinct shift happen when that album comes out, where suddenly it just locks into place and you go, oh my God, that's the Vangelis that Blade Runner comes from, even though that was seven years later, right? I mean, he started work on Blade Runner in December of 81, right? Like that was quite a bit after this but he was in that space. He had those instruments, although I don't think he had the CS80 yet because that came out in 76. He had a lot of the percussion that we hear in Blade Runner and the natural tendency of being in a space with those kind of instrumental forces was pushing him in a direction where he could take that improvisatory stuff that he loved to do with his prog rock and he could take the Greek roots that he grew up with. He could take this idea of drones. He could take all these different world music things and put them into something that was very cinematic and very dramatic you know, which is why the first album who made in that space was about heaven and hell. It was like the most dramatic thing you can think of, right? Um, and, uh, and then he get, makes Chariots of Fire and the rest is history.
2: Yeah, and Chariots of Fire really, and I, there was a period, I mean, there's a very distinct period in Vangelis's career and he's in a different period right now, but there was a distinct period from the time of Heaven and Hell, it, I would say through the early 90s where you could listen to his music and you would know it was Vangelis. That's what I think. I know that you were like, oh, like I would know, like I knew Hymna was his right away. I knew it when I first heard it before I even realized it was this, like, I knew it was his music. Now. I don't know if it's just because that, I'm familiar with it, but he had a very distinct sound, but before he didn't like for a long time, the music he was making with uh, John Anderson and the music he was making, uh, as a, as a younger man, who was sort of exploring his talent was not, it did was not distinctive. I mean, I think it, it was distinctive in melody, but it wasn't distinctive in style. Once.
0: A million stars and touched as only one can. Once we did play how the past delivered you amidst our.
1: And also,
3: I think the period you're talking about, a lot more of his work made it into popular culture um, a lot more than before or after. Um, I think, uh, yeah, one of those was used in the Olympics, I think, in, in 84, 85.
1: Well, and also in 2012, the theme from Chariots of Fire was used in the London
3: Olympics, fittingly. Right, uh, and some of some of the stuff was used in commercials as well. So you know, it was it, it was people who didn't know his name knew some of his music and some of his pieces.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I, and like we mentioned earlier, too, that just really briefly, just jumping in that the the a part of Heaven and Hell from the first movement is the theme for Cosmos' personal journey with Carl Sagan too. So it it was it was omnipresent. You're totally right. Oh wow, and and a very similar melody
3: that sounds like the Chariots of Fire theme as well.
1: Right, which is actually why he went on to win a lawsuit. That was filed against him by somebody who thought he was plagiarizing their work. Another Greek composer who had a similar theme um, in a piece he'd written before *Chariots of Fire* came out. Before um, *Chariots of Fire* came out, and tried to sue Vangelis, and Vangelis won by playing. I'm assuming in the in you know in the the things that I've read about it, he played examples of his music oh. where he had used a similar melody and i was listening to that today and i was like i found it because it's the same thing it's the same like, exact he was
3: like bitch i plagiarized myself
1: <laughs> yeah he's like i <laughs> plagiarized <sue> <laughs> before you were born <laughs> anyway dan sorry to cut you off Go ahead. i was
3: gonna make a point uh when we brought up blade runner and the the process of scoring films and how we've we've looked in <laughs> um, independently i'm sure we've read about you know john williams and and other composers. Um, And, you know, a lot of times, for example, Christopher Nolan, um, when working with Hans Zimmer, um, a lot of times has him write the music kind of independently while he's working on the film or even before he's working on the film and doesn't use the film to influence the musician. He kind of has he wants it to kind of you know, grow independently. And, and the composer might know the theme of the film or a little bit of the plot or something like that to give it a, or, you know, the year that it's set in or something like that to give it a general tone. Whereas... Hopefully they have a script. Right, right. Um, but again, whether he wants the composer to read the script to, to inspire the music or not, I think, mm-hmm. I think Christopher Nolan has specifically not done that sometimes. Not in every film. Interesting. But, um, Interesting. Yeah, like I, I think that's how he scored... Dunkirk I want to say I'd have to look into it a little bit more but my point is that, that you can do that different ways and so Vangelis uh, in scoring Blade Runner I think it was done I don't know if this would be more traditional but um, really put together you know a 20 minute or so cut of what they had and played it for him and so Vangelis' score for Blade Runner was inspired by the imagery of the film. It, it did happen concurrently and he did get to see scenes from the film. So I, I, you know, I didn't, I wanted to make sure that that was clear for that particular soundtrack since it hasn't, it's not necessarily always done that way.
1: Right. Well, well the way and we should, well, we'll get to, to the process of scoring Blade Runner soon. Sure, I hope sure. but, the, but you're absolutely right. That is a, a huge deviation from the ways things usually happen. And, uh, and it was and it was it, it's a real testament to how how respected Vangelis was that they like allowed him to basically score on his own timetable um and after they were already coming up on the deadline and everything and they they basically were like okay go take the time and you know write and record and perform and produce this yourself um it's pretty pretty amazing i
2: think it's also important to note that Vangelis was not your typical composer for hire he was very very as you, well, yes, secretive, but he didn't say yes to a lot of things. A lot of right. people would want him. Be selective. So wants, yeah, very, very selective. He worked when he wanted to. He was making independent albums on his own. And there's a lot of them. You guys can go check them out. Uh, one thing that I remember, and this was, I wouldn't say later in his career. I mean, this is, well, 19, 18 years ago, he released Methodia, which was music for the NASA mission, the for the 2001 Mars Odyssey, which is absolutely stunning. Also not traditional, what you would think of Van Gelis, when you would think of his music. Very rooted in um, traditional scores and opera. Very operatic. But it was also actually written almost 10 years earlier. But it wasn't published until 2001, when they, it was a big, huge deal that they, they had this uh, Mars-NASA odyssey. Like, I think it was a touchdown. And they did a whole... You can even watch the whole performance, because I think... It, was the performance was held in greece i believe in a big huge amph uh, amphitheater is that the right word i'm using
1: um Amphitheatro. yeah whatever <laughs> yeah i think quite appropriately if it's in
3: greece
2: <laughs> uh I, I believe that's where it was held it was absolutely amazing and but again this is something that he had worked on privately years before The larger point that I'm trying to make is that Vangelis is not an easy hire. He chooses the work he wants to, to do. He's busy doing his own work. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, the, the only other director to, to really use him in a, in a, in a film, aside from uh, Ridley Scott for 1492, which is amazing, which we'll get to eventually, is the director of Alexander which his name slips me right now.
1: We'll say it was James Cameron. So Oliver Stone, a huge... Oliver Stone. Thank <laughs> Al- you, Dan. Oh, was it Al- Oliver Stone directed that? Mm-hmm. Yep. That is an unorthodox choice of material for him to
2: direct. He'd been wanting to make that movie for years, years and years and years. And all the studios said no. And then finally, he's, they said yes. And then it tanked at the box office.
1: Oh, interesting. Well, I have not seen it. Um, so, uh, so a huge change happens in Vangelis's life. And I think in the trajectory of film scores, when, uh, in 1981, he gets added to the, to score chariots of fire, which was of course a groundbreaking Academy award-winning film directed by Hugh Hudson. Um, and it was, a, an extraordinary choice to have Vangelis score this movie because it was a period piece that took place in the 1920s. Um, and before this, you know, period pieces had been scored like period pieces, right? Like, you you know, you would see these things with these sweeping orchestral soundtracks. You know, you think of like the way, you know, Gandhi had was scored a few years after this. And you think of, of, of like the prototypical historical tale. Um, well, not historical compared to Alexander the Great, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but Vangelis was an interesting choice. And it wasn't like he volunteered himself for this because he had some sort of a breakthrough eureka moment. He was chosen for it. Hugh Hudson um, had worked with him previously on some commercial projects, and he was a big fan of Opera Sauvage, among other things, and, uh, and he thought this might be a good choice, and so he talked to uh, some of his production staff. They decided to give it a shot, and, um, and Hudson uh, specifically said that he wanted to make this feel like a more modern film, even though it was set in an older time period. To make it feel not like it was this dusty relic, but that it was something um, something new and something that f- spoke to a 1980s audience. So, *Cherry of Fire*, of course, has one of the most iconic themes ever written. It's like fucking ubiquitous at this point, but it's great. I mean, it's a it's a it's a it's an amazingly uplifting piece of music. Um, but the rest of the score is also really good. And there are actually there's uh, a track from uh, *Opera Sauvage* on the soundtrack to. Um, fire oh my god I said said children of the corn the chariots of fire. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long day um, and uh, so it's so that's an interesting little tidbit but anyway my point being so it's it's interesting you look at vangelis his the music that he wrote for chariots of fire is very orchestral and very symphonic and very traditional for compared to everything else that he had written and this gets to something that I think is part of why the directors who have worked with him love him so much is because he still has a lot of respect for the vision of the film And for being a part of the creative process he's not trying to say this is my project i'm going to do whatever i want he's working along with the vision of the rest of the film so even though he was working in this idiom that was very modern it was very synthesizer heavy he was doing it in a way that felt kind of traditional and it felt like a bridge between these two time periods and so you know of course we're about to get to blade burner because that was a matter of months later but I want to just point out that there's this interesting similarity going on where you have Chariots of Fire becoming temporally displaced with this soundtrack from the future. And then you have Blade Runner coming along, which is temporarily uh, obliterated by the soundtrack that is at once of the future and at once of the past. And I think one of the great qualities of Vangelis' music and one of the things about his music that I think is uh, inimitable is that it sounds completely out of time and out of, it, it just, it sounds like it's eternal, you know? And it's, and I think part of that is because he has such a, a personal approach to it. It's it's not influenced by very many other things that are obvious, you know? It is really his voice and his compositional style coming through in a really clear way. And I think it gives Chariots of Fire this um, really interesting non-period aspect. And I think it gives Blade Runner this incredibly beautifully cloudy non-periodic or non-period specific aspect.
2: And what's interesting about that too is there all of us know we can listen to music from the 80s. Synthesizer was huge. It was new. Um, it just come on the scene in the 70s. It was really kind of center stage in the 80s. So we can listen to a lot of music and go oh yeah that's that 80s synth. Vangelis was also obviously using synthesizers but when we listen to his music we don't think oh that 80s synth it doesn't sound 80s it's right. sound it's, it it's it's its, it's, it's <laughs> own <laughs> world you know <laughs> totally and that's what i love about that's what i love about um his music is that it's not like there's a a, tr- a soundtrack called synchronicity that i love um from, from a very interesting movie but the soundtrack um is very rooted in synthesizer the film takes place in the 80s even though it was made like a few years ago but it's identifiably 80s and you uh-huh. can tell that they enjoy vangelis um and there's a lot of influence there but it's not vangelis not in any stretch of the way it just it sounds too time sp- specific whereas vangelis's music and it's interesting that you, you your discussion or your your explanation of chariots of fire when we think about that Children of the court. Yeah. Children of the Fire. Um, Children of the Chariots. <laughs> when we think about that film, or if we think about the music, because it's a score that I own that I absolutely adore, we we don't ever think, oh yeah, that's synth heavy. We never think that. If anything, it's completely perfect in the time and place that it's in. It feels completely right, even though it wasn't specific. It it, it wasn't traditional. It's
1: just genius. And one of the specific reasons for that is because he doesn't use synthesizers in the way a lot of synthesizer musicians approach the format. So a lot of synth music relies on certain things that we get used to anticipating, one of them being arpeggiation, meaning spreading a chord out between members. So, for example, if you listen to Stranger Things, which obviously everybody everybody listening to this watches Stranger Things so is fucking amazing— That music is very, I think, typically synth, although it's great. I'm not taking away from it. It sounds very much like what you think synth music sounds like, because it's got a lot of of like, you know, the kind of like this rhythmic arpeggiation going on. It's got a lot of block chords. It's very keyboard intensive. What's that, Dan? I was going to say, makes perfect sense, right? Because they are trying to
3: specifically make a nostalgic 80s period piece. So it's kind of like, You almost don't have a choice but to make the music. I mean, as amazing as the music is, but you you have to steep it in that time period. Because if you didn't, and if you did something more subtle, no one would really grasp what you were doing, and it would would be off. It needs to... Yeah,
1: everything about that show is about putting it in that place and anchoring it, right? Right, right. And having tons of
3: Easter eggs from the 80s all over the place. Like, that's a big part of that show. And and we love it, especially people our age who grew up in the 80s or, or who were alive in the 80s. Like, we love that stuff.
1: Totally. Jamie was already, uh, elderly. (laughs) You're you're totally right. I was raising the grandkids. I had grandkids. (laughs) Hey, come on down children. So, but here's the thing is, is, Vangelis does not approach his music at all like that because he was doing his own thing. By the time he was scoring Blade Runner, he was not playing in synth bands. He was not, you know, fucking around with rolling drum machines. Like he was, he was in his own place doing his own thing in a studio surrounded by a mixture of acoustic and electronic synthetic instruments and playing again with what i was talking about at the beginning which is timbre. And that to me is the great gift that Vangelis gives us is that he and i'm not going to say he single-handedly did this, but he more than any other musician i can personally think of treated the synthesizer as an as an orchestral instrument unto itself. The same way that, you know, pipe organs were developed to become basically or- orchestras that a church could have without having to buy an orchestra. Vangelis used the various modulation capacities of polyphonic, especially synthesizers, to create worlds of sound, universes of sound. Um, And instead of just imitating orchestras, like the pipe organ kind of started trying to do when it was being developed, he used the synthesizer to create sounds that we had never heard before. And he was focused again on timbre, on how do you combine these elements of sound to create things that um, open up new worlds. And I think a lot of synth music... Doesn't do that because a lot of synth music comes from this place of trying to make something to to dance to or something that has like a really definite beat to it or something that feels um, Almost like escapist and again, this is like the biggest generalization ever because there's a million genres of synth music But I'm talking about synth music at the time in terms of popular culture. You're absolutely right. It was really like uh, It was like get up on the floor and dance kind of music If Magellus was like, let me take you to Mars and let's go sit in a temple and watch fucking waterfalls upside down for two hours. You know what (laughs) I mean? It's a very different effect. Um, And also the last thing I'll say is is that the ways that that he plays, I mean, he, and he's talked about this too, he doesn't play the synthesizer because he just loves synthesizers, he plays it because he's a keyboardist, right, when since the time he was a child, he was playing on various types of keyboard instruments, and that's why, you know, he was offered the keyboard role in yes, and turn it down. He was offered the uh, keyboardist role in, in other notable bands. He was a touring keyboard player. He was a studio player. He was just great playing various keyboard instruments. And that's why he loves playing piano. And That's why he loves playing, you know, all sorts of chimbalums, all sorts of things that that are, you know, percussion instruments that you pluck or you play. Um, but the synthesizer for him was a keyboard instrument that he could use to unlock new sounds. And I think that's why he has used it so frequently. But he's not playing it as a synth player plays it. He's playing it as a composer plays it. And, it's, and I, I think... There's a there's a substantive difference there that translates so that when you're hearing it, you're not hearing it as you know big big chords and stabs of sound. You're hearing it as polyphonic textures interweaving with one another and creating something that you couldn't create using any other means.
3: Yeah, and I, and I think when you read about his methodology, uh, I think I was reading about this for Blade Runner in particular, but I imagine he did this with other things too. But that one is especially layered, where he would. You know, improvise and create the melody, and then just start layering and layering and layering chimes and other sounds, and taking it away. That sort of you know, just really that that approach of just dumping it all on, and then taking things away, and seeing kind of what fit the mood and what he liked. Um, And and I think you can tell just because, I mean, every time I listen to, in particular, the Blade Runner soundtrack. Uh, and and it's various iterations and bootleg versions, et cetera. I rarely am listening to the, you know, the, the 1994 one that they released. Mostly I listen to the Esper edition, which has a lot of the film sound, but, um, it's just like when you stop to break it down or adjust your equalizer or go from headphones to your stereo or whatever, it's like you hear new layers and you're like, oh, I'd never heard that particular set of chimes or I'd never heard that one instrument way in the background. Like you can tell there's 50 things going on and uh, that, that's, that's just amazing. It's a, I think it's a huge part of what we love in his music.
2: Yeah, 34 to 46. One fact about the way Vangelis approached the score for Blade Runner, which is something I kind of alluded to earlier, was that, as you said, Patrick, as we've discussed, Vangelis does not read music. It's not... It's not. That is non, a non-typical thing for uh, film composers or, or musicians. A lot of them do. I don't know if most of them do, Patrick, but I would say the majority of them do. Would, is that, would that be... I
1: I, I I would hope the majority of them do, but I feel like I find... I I feel like I find out about people not being able to read music yeah yeah. uh, it's surprising a little bit yeah Patrick made it
3: sound more
1: uh, common than you would think like you mentioned Danny Elfman being the same way yeah and you know some of this could be anecdotal and some of this could be kind of trying to like take people down a peg but there were music I mean the Beatles can't read cheap music and they created some of the greatest music I've ever written you know I mean like it's it's not this is not a judgment at all but it, it, does, it, it informs the way that you approach the creative process. And and to me, it makes sense why Vangelis would compose the way that he composes, which is very additive and very much um, kind of throwing as much of the wall as he can at a given time and then kind of honing it. I, I think like to me, well, well, we'll get more into this in a minute, but I, but, but let's let's talk like a little bit about Blade Runner um, and especially like how we got to be a part of the project and and some some of those details. And, and then let's get into some of the, the music and a little more. Um, Detail is that
2: okay? Yeah, I mean, so we all know, or I, I would imagine that they weren't even sure they wanted to go with Vangelis. They were using a lot of temp scores of Jerry Goldsmith, um, and despite Vangelis having won the Academy Award for Best Score, he wasn't their first choice at all. Uh, and I think that there were people who were weren't like keen on him. So it was a, uh, it was definitely something that Ridley Scott pushed for.
3: Yeah, and and I think um, that again ridley scott sold him on because i i think by the time he was being shown um you know a, a 20 minute reel or whatever the the uh, edit that he saw of the film he hadn't signed up yet so that was part of him being convinced and i think he loved what he saw and loved the um you know the mixing of eras that we talked about before and it, it sounds like it happened you know again it was the right project at the right time that really um sold him on it and god can you imagine? I mean, you don't. You know what? Actually, you don't even have to imagine if someone else had done it. Or at least, we have a hint of what would have happened if someone else had done it. Because if you watch the work print, the entire third act is scored with uh, kind of boilerplate, like Western bad guy kind of music, and it is atrocious. I mean, obviously, they wouldn't have done that. Most likely, that was just like filler. But it just completely changes that scene. Um, and, and so, you know, I mean, it's hard to imagine a Blade Runner without Vangelis' score. Um, I think probably for us, it's cliche because we're so steeped in this information and in future noir, but the thing you hear the most that I haven't heard that much about any other film is, and, and you see it in different formats, right? Um, you know, on IMDb, on Wikipedia, in actual news articles and in interviews, but so many people comment that the score in Blade Runner is a part of the city itself or it's a character in itself. And again, it's a beautiful concept that at this point we've heard many, many times, but it really is true. I have, you know, I'm sure there's other examples, but I'd have a hard time coming up with them quickly that, that matches um, that, that, um, that parallels Blade Runner in that way.
1: I mean, it, it's an aesthetic shorthand. It's, it's like, it's a shorthand for an aesthetic that is universally recognized, you know, like just like when people share, you know, rainy cityscapes of, of, you know, Shenzhen at night, and everybody goes. Oh, it's like Blade Runner. I mean, anytime somebody does something that has the feeling in some way of of the of the score for Blade Runner, everybody recognizes immediately that it's like vangelis I mean, there's a whole genre of music. There's like an actual subgenre of music that is Blade Runner inspired film scoring, not film. I mean, just not even film scoring, just scoring. um People who listen to this show have written these and sent them to us. They're great. I mean, you know, our our. uh our page frequently shares excerpts of this stuff on SoundCloud. People write this stuff all the time. I, I did a score, which we'll talk about in a bit, influenced by it. I mean, it's something that it represents. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't think that you can, you can't say that about any other movie, you know? Like there have been distinctive scores and there have been incredible scores, but I don't think there's ever been as distinctive and as immediately memorable a score as Vangelis' work on Blade Runner. I, I want to point out um, how he got on the project which was Terry Rawlings, which I think is also, um, cool. I feel like, I feel like he's been coming up so much lately in our discussions. We should probably do a Terry Rawlings episode, but of course he, he was working on chariots of fire, which is how he got to know Van Vangelis. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to look back now. It's, it's almost like, you know, we see it as such a no brainer, right? It's like, how could he possibly, how could Scott have possibly wanted any other human to score this film? But like he had, he had done only one other mainstream Hollywood movie by this point. Um, nobody like knew him. He was just this kind of mysterious Greek that kind of came in and did his stuff and then left. Um, he was a, a a very big gamble to take. And also like Dan, you were mentioning earlier, his work style and the way that he scored the film was not typical. You know, um, I, I would say for better or for worse, but it, it is for worse. Time is money when you're composing a film. And a lot of the time you are given like an extremely tight deadline. And you see that like, you know, a great example talking about James Horner, I don't know why we were talking about James Horner, but he came up at some point in this conversation. Um, we uh, so so like so he you know ran out of time composing aliens, and that's why I think you hear a lot of the the, the a lot of the things in aliens that fall flat musically are because he just didn't have time to do it. You know, and that happens. That's like the story of every film score ever. You know, um, at least in the last twenty years, it's it's really a tight deadline. You're not sitting there watching dailies and, and improvising at the piano. You're not going back and forth like, you know, like I mean, John Williams and, and um uh Steven Spielberg, when they worked together, you know, like like John Williams would come up with like a motive and he would write down on a piece of staff paper and he would like go run to the piano and show Steven Spielberg and they would like talk about it. And that's like the dream that every composer has that film scoring would be like. But it's not. I mean, it's a super commercial process. And you're not wor- – I mean, Hans Zimmer, when he's scoring a movie, it's not Hans Zimmer scoring a movie. He's leading a team of people scoring a movie. He has a company that does this. It is just the, it's just the way that it has to happen because of the ways in which films are shot and the budgetary restrictions of them and the time restrictions. So yeah. for Vangelis to say that you know he wanted the movie to be done and that he was going to then watch it and get to know it. And then he would let them know if he was going to score it. That was basically the arrangement. I mean, you know, he came into the project after it was essentially finished. And, and and then something else that Paul Salmon elucidates beautifully, as always, in Future Noir, that was very atypical and was something that I was really struck by during the process of scoring Gethsemane, is that not only was he writing the music, but he was also playing it and producing it. Which for people who don't, you know quote unquote, like compose might sound like, like, oh, that's like obvious. Cause like singer songwriters, but when, when you're working in like orchestral contexts like that under a deadline to do all of those things and to do, to do them all well, is really, really hard. It's like when somebody, you know, writes, shoots, acts in and directs a movie like that's, there's not many people who do that well. Right. Um, and that's what, that's what Vangelis did. Like he, he not only envisioned the musical world, he created it. He, played it, all those instruments, all the different synthesizers, all the different... which is a, uh, the different chimes. N- not, I mean, sorry
3: to interrupt, and maybe yeah. this is a dumb comment, but from a you know non-musician perspective, like it's also a giant time suck. You got two hands, one mouth. I mean, how many instruments can you play at the same time? Like You're recording a bunch of different tracks, and if you don't have 10 musicians with you, I mean, that takes forever. So that, oh, yeah. Especially when you're trying to do 50 layers of stuff. I mean, that's
1: just... Like, Which hard. is the way that score is. Exactly. It's so layered, right? And especially, especially, when you're not reading from a score, right? Yeah. Because my, my work process... Is I, I write the entire thing out on eighty pages of staff paper and to put it in the computer, and then I start recording it. You know, he he didn't do that. He was just playing everything all at the same time, <laughs> and then seeing what worked, and then and then iterating on it, which is crazy. And that's why his work style, which he said, especially when he was in the studio, was he would plug in as many synth- as synthesizers as he could at one given time into the control console, set up the board to record it, and then he would play as many of them at once as he could, moving around and doing all these different things and seeing what sounded good, and then figuring out what he liked. And then working from that, so he was really doing a million things at one time when he was scoring this.
0: For me, sound was the the, the, the first, the primary thing. I was not content to just to play a simple melody. How to go beyond that?
3: Does that mean essentially that you know the final track that actually ends up getting recorded because he's not writing it? I mean, is it still? a just
1: well practiced improvisation by the time he gets to the oh, front yeah. track. Yeah. Understood. I mean at a certain point he's not improvising anymore because he knows what he's doing and he's just repeating it, right? But it's but it's the result of an improvisatory experience. And and I think that's exactly why it's so perfect in the way that it comes out in this movie is that it feels like it unveils itself over time, you know it feels so uh, visceral and so non... It feels so non-cerebral, and I think it's very much in the body, and I think it really suits the film beautifully. Yeah, I mean... I think it's... Um, yeah, but... Yeah. The, right, right when you said non-cerebral, uh, right before you said that,
3: I was also thinking, like, man, that is a very busy brain, though, to keep all that stuff in your head, and, to, like, that's a lot of stuff firing and a lot of things going on, especially when, again, you don't have it on paper. You're keep, you know, you're know, working mm-hmm. all those things out. I mean, again, I, I don't know if he took different elements to make different tracks, meaning tracks that ended up being separate songs on the soundtrack at the same time, or whether he kind of worked one scene at a time, and then when he was done with that, he moved
1: on. Um, But what a process. Well, we don't know very much about that either because he hasn't talked very much about it. So a lot of it's still kind of a mystery.
2: But what we do know is, and what's on record, is he scored Blade Runner based off his emotions, based off the way the, the footage made him feel. And he would kind of come up with something in the moment where he would, you know, he, that's why he had to watch it all. He, he had to find out what what he was feeling, what it was telling him. And then he would put it on again, which is something that is so not typical. And as you said, no one has the time for that. No one has the time for that. But at, at the same time, what was happening for the score for Blade Runner is something that he's known for now, where he produces almost every bit of music unless he's doing an opera and he's got to bring people in, he's doing every, you know, every single piece of music that we hear he's responsible for. It's, it's unheard right. of. And, but that's, that's who Vangelis is. And that's, that's the name that he's made for himself.
0: Uh, when we talk about music is future as well, because music, never, uh, is the, the dimension. The music is, is a, is a multidimensional, uh, situation, it's not, it's not at all, it's not, it contains all the dimensions, dimensions we don't know, especially things that we don't know. This is, actually this is what about music, music contains whatever, whatever, whatever we don't know about. We don't actually, we can't um, explain. Maybe we know, but uh, knowing one thing and explaining is is, is a totally different matter.
1: And that's the way that it works. And that's why he hasn't done that many film scores. The ones that he's done have been masterpieces, but he hasn't done a million of them, right? He's not Michael Giacchino. Like this is, that's the way that he works. Um, And it takes a lot of time and it takes, it's very, I mean, and it's beautiful. You gave me that same, you afforded me that same space with Gethsemane too, where you were like, take as much time as you want, which is an incredible gift. I mean, that was, that was amazing. And, And I can see how that kind of a mindset leads to music that feels like it, it is not bound by the strictures of deadlines and limitations, and it feels more like it was an honest response to the, the, how he felt about the movie, which, of course, as everybody knows, was initially terrified. He was terrified of the film at first because he felt oh. like it could be real and that if it were real, then we would be in for um, a nightmare
2: but he but it was two things he said he was thrilled and enthralled by it but he was also terrified because that's the same future he saw for the world as well right, so it was right. um but it's it's interesting and discussing his music for blade runner typically with music i mean well at least bad score we all know what that sounds like just kind of filler unfortunately a lot of the marvel films have just this really safe monochromatic filler music it's super um, commercial to, yeah yeah super commercial super safe just to kind of push the narrative along with blade runner but with and vangelis his music is as textural as the images that we're seeing and oftentimes that doesn't work oftentimes the music's a response to what it's to what we're seeing, and it's playing off of it. Whereas, like you said, Dan, the music really is an integral character. Without that music, uh-huh. the movie would not live. The music is a character, and it's even been discussed that oftentimes, sometimes we'll hear certain things like that we think are sound effects or that we think are added. Those are things that Van Gelis put in there himself. It wasn't, you know, a Foley artist or whatever. All of those, 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 th- that. You know, obviously the piano, but there's other little small things that he added to create that beautiful tapestry that I've never heard since.
3: It's so dense. You know, I, I've never thought about it this way. And if this sounds ridiculous or it doesn't resonate with you guys, feel free to tell me. But as we're talking about this, it almost makes me feel not for the whole thing, but for, for parts of it in certain scenes. It almost feels like, you know, oftentimes when someone's writing music for a film, uh, they do their they might do their best to make this seem natural, but a director might actually instruct a composer like, okay, I want you to elicit this feeling out of this scene, right? Because something sad is happening or whatever. And so the music is kind of doubling down on that and really trying to like manipulate the audience. Um, I think the better um, artists and the better directors don't do that. Um, But in Blade Runner, it almost feels like instead of the music trying to make, trying to elicit a specific emotion out of you, the music being its own character, like the music has its own emotion and its own relationship to the scene that's going on. And you kind of have to process both independently and at the same time as they come together to work. And that gives me a whole new feeling about the scene. And and I don't know if that can be connected to, for example, my favorite sort of switching of musics in the scenes where you look at the love scene with Deckard and Rachel, um, you know, with with the uh, saxophone and it's like, you know, it's got a little bit of that sexy kind of love feeling to it. And when you listen to the Esper edition and you hear that um, scene played with completely different music, which I'm pretty sure is still all Vangelis. It's just either extras or taken from other parts. And it completely neutralizes the sort of positive sensual loving feeling of that scene and doesn't make it scary we've talked about you know what if that scene had like thriller music in it how differently would the violence read and all that right but um (laughs)
1: yeah Yeah.
3: but it's like um it makes it way more neutral and way more ambiguous and so i don't know where i was going with this but but it's interesting to see the relationship to um, Vangelis' score and to the scenes, especially when you can see a sort of different version of it.
1: Yeah, and this goes to something that I was saying in the previous episode about the second part of our theatrical cut conversation, which is why the, the ending in the theatrical cut is, is so tonally deaf to me, is that nothing in Blade Runner, you know, other than that, operates on one level at a given time. So if you're scoring a film and you want to make the audience feel sad and you write just sad music for them and it accompanies just a sad scene and it's just sad... Then it reads as one thing, right? It's very one note. Um, but it, and it doesn't mean you have to contradict that. But if you can make the sadness earned, if you can like make it not easy sadness, if you can make people have to kind of fight through something to get to it, then that's you know that's complex too. But what's beautiful a lot of the time is in great film scores, and I think about this with The Will Be Blood" score by Johnny Greenwood, which is one of my absolute favorites ever. Oh yeah. Also. Oh yeah. Um, a lot of the time, the music is almost contradictory to what you're seeing on screen. It's so divergent, but it is arrived at by a creative process. And we see that and we think, why would they score it like that? You know, like you were talking about under the skin recently in a Patreon episode, which I still have not seen, but I have the soundtrack to, and I love like, it sounds like nothing. Here's a great example. Chernobyl, right? The Chernobyl soundtrack, which is fucking brilliant sounds like nothing else that is identifiable as any kind of a of an easy musical utterance. It is so complex and strange and um and unsettling and also beautiful. And it's just operating on on a lot of different planes, you know? And I think what Vangelis does so masterfully in Blade Runner is the music is always operating different in different ways. Even for the love theme that you were just talking about, which is like maybe the maybe the most one note of the entire score sure. as it's put out in theaters, it's still not just kind of like sex, sexy love time music, it is mournful, right? Like the, the saxophone sounds almost lambent. It sounds like it's wailing, like it's crying. It doesn't sound happy, mm-hmm. you know? It doesn't sound erotic. It doesn't sound excited. It's using an erotic sound, which the saxophone is like the most, you know, human sounding of the wind instruments in a way that feels almost like it's mourning, you know? Um, We're going to talk a lot more about the music itself on the next episode. And, and we have a, about a million things to unpack with that. And I can't wait for it. But, um, I, I do just want to point out that, uh, the, the, the moments in the score that I think are the most unforgettable, a lot of the time are the moments where I cannot picture a different way to appropriately score them. When he does something that sounds like just so unorthodox and so strange. And I think a great example of that, and this can be kind of my closing thought as, as we kind of wind up, is that, um he said, as Jamie pointed out that when he first saw the footage from the film, he was enthralled and he was terrified. And the music that we got from this guy who was enthralled and terrified by what he was seeing is the most heartfelt, sad, nostalgic, simple, complicated music ever. It is not terrified. It is not in awe. It is music that is so at once small and that it's emotionally intimate and it's, and it's, um, it's very personal and yet universal because it's so, you know, it's such a, uh, a maximalist gesture that it encompasses the world, you know? Um, and it's not, it's not a sci-fi score, right? And it's not an orchestral score. It's just the score to Blade Runner. Like that's all that it is. And I think that uh, it's just an, an unparalleled achievement in film scoring. And I fell in love with the score before I fell in love with the movie, honestly. I, to me, like the score was so did I. the gateway to falling in love with Blade Runner yeah. because it showed me things that I didn't know were there in the movie. And that's what I'm getting at and it's a very long-winded way of saying it, is that a great score will reveal depths within the material to you that you didn't know to be looking for. And it will show you things, even though you can't put a finger on it, even though you don't know why it's showing you things, and you don't know what it's showing you, it's making you go, there's more to what I'm seeing than just what I'm seeing. There is more going on here. There are undercurrents, right? And Vangelis is the music of undercurrents. Vangelis is the music of subtext." Vangelis is the music of poetry and poetry is not literal right the idea with poetry is you are you are using things we recognize you're using words just like Vangelis uses things we recognize using sounds to create ineffable impressions of things you can't get at any other way than by abstracting them so when Vangelis is abstracting what we think of as a film score he's allowing poetry to happen by creating things that touch us in ways we didn't know um, existed. And, uh, and I think it's just a, an incredible achievement.
3: But I was going to ask you, and this is not a shameless plug for our audio drama Gethsemane, but I, I just wanted, I know that you were thinking about Vangelis and you were thinking about this score in the two months that you took to yourself to kind of score our project. And so uh, knowing that, certainly from the results, I can see that it's not derivative and it doesn't necessarily feel like him, but there's some inspiration there. How did that impact your work and kind of, you know, I, I know you were thinking about him a lot when you were scoring it. So I'm curious, you know, within the appropriate context of this conversation, how that kind of worked for you as a composer. Since we can't ask Van yeah, works yeah, thanks.
1: Yeah, right. I would love to ask Van that that question too. I would also love for him to have scored Gethsemane. But you know, I I I absolutely <laughs> love doing that project. Oh yeah. Um, and and thank you for asking me about it. So so to me, I had to. at first I was stultified by this idea that like I was trying to match up with like the best score ever written that I was trying to create something that would feel like of a part with it because a lot of the fan scores that I hear I don't like because they sound like fan projects they sound like they're emulating a style rather than getting at the story that they're trying to tell in their own way and I was thinking like to me like the reason Vangelis achieved the sound that he achieved in Blade Runner wasn't because he was trying to make a synth-heavy score that sounded futuristic and cyberpunk. Like the score was arrived at based on the emotional impulse that he felt when he was reading the story and seeing the footage from the film. Which is why when you guys were finishing the script to it, I kept saying I don't want to see the final product, I don't want to hear them recording it, I don't want to know. I know the story, I want to like separate from it and give myself weeks away from it where I'm not In it, So that I can sit down and I can go through the entire thing and I can improvise and I can pull a Vangelis and I can start thinking in those terms. So, I mean, I can show you, you know, maybe I will one of these days, but like I have, you know, pages of music that I wrote out for it, which was all thrown out. And and at first I was going through and I was creating these like big scores and I was writing it all out and I was thinking of the motives that I wanted to do. And I realized that that was not how Vangelis approached the score. And because of that, it was sounding like it wasn't Blade Runner appropriate. It was sounding like it was my, you know, contemporary classic music. So I thought, why don't I separate and think about how Vangelis approached the scoring to Blade Runner? And I researched it. And I kept coming back to this idea that I brought up at the the beginning of the episode, that it was about timbre for him. It was about the sound. And that once he found the sound that he wanted, he reacted emotionally to the story. And then viewed it through the prism of that sound world that he was going for. So I stopped writing things down. I closed my eyes. I turned lights off. I hooked up my keyboard. And I just started just like playing notes and just modulating, you know, oscillators and things and modulating different parameters of it. Just listening and meditating on the sounds that were coming out. And then as the story unfolded, as I was going through it, I started thinking, okay, what would the melody be that would or come out of this sound that I'm coming up with that would be speaking to these characters, hmm. right? And, um, it was completely unlike anything that I've ever done. And it was super scary because I, I have never, I mean, I was basically like turning off the skill sets that I have that I use that I'm like, you know, um, yeah, you're training. to some degree yeah. for, right. The, the thing, the things that I do that people are impressed with, um, and in using the things that I used when I was a child, you know, like when I was a kid, I used to play the piano with, with an umbrella. And I was getting so much trouble for it, but I used to love <laughs> touching it with the end of the umbrella. And my mom would like yell at me. And now she, of course, like jokes that she shouldn't have done that because like I ended up being a composer. And that was like me doing it as a, as a, as a four-year-old. Uh, and I went back to like the four-year-old that was within me. And I thought like, why was I so, why was I gravitating so much to that experience? Because it wasn't like a, a good sound, but there was something in the sound that was really um, transporting me as I was doing it. And I tried to do that as much as I could with the synthesizer context for Gethsemane. I started just playing around with sounds and parameters and thinking, like, what's the story that these sounds are telling me? And then what's the story that they, that my friends are telling me? And that's kind of the, the process. But it was it was almost like a, a backwards to my normal compositional thing, which is very, you know, there was very little pre-composition. It was very emotional. And it was very messy. And I, I really loved doing that. That's And Vangelis is why I did. Right. You know?
3: That's really cool. It sounds like you went that's the right approach because you were inspired by his method and not specifically his music. So you weren't trying to go yeah. for a sound. You were just trying to say, I wonder if I can not emulate, but create my own version of that process and see kind of what comes out. That's a really cool idea.
1: You said it much more succinctly. than <laughs> you,
3: you use way bigger words. Sometimes I don't even know what they mean. <laughs>
2: I think in closing, at least for me, uh, as we, have been discussing Vangelis and his music and uh, it, its resonance in all of us. Uh, I think of it as this movement of music that he's made that is a love letter to the loss of our humanity. And I feel like what scared him when he saw the footage was that he saw humanity losing its humanness. Um, and here we are in 2019 actually dealing with that. We're losing the earth Sort of, or we're fighting to save it. One of the two, and we we are struggling to to keep our humanity and to treat people well. And uh, I, the music really sounds like a, a tribute to that to me. It sounds like um, uh, the the better angels of our nature. He was really trying to like show hope in it, as opposed to dark. Because I don't find the 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 music for Blade Runner as dark. I find it as melodic and beautiful and and rich uh but not dark not not whatsoever maybe the darkest part of it and we can discuss this in the second episode is that end track that end track the the, the end credits track is the most sci-fi piece that mm. he did for the the show but if anything it wasn't it was like the music you heard for when that door cl- closes which is really the door opening the music for the future hope for the future um but yeah i uh, it's it's a score unlike any anything i've ever heard or will hear i'm sure
1: we're gonna get gonna get much more deeply into it on the next episode and i cannot wait for yeah that. Oh, before we yeah
2: before we wrap yeah. we want to mention a couple of things uh, number one, we mentioned uh, Gethsemane. Uh, it is our audio drama, fe- uh, essentially a feature length audio drama. It is available at Blade. Yeah, at at uh, yeah, Bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash Gethsemane. Um, it's also going to be on YouTube coming up soon. We're going to kind of do a re-premiere with that. And so a new image that we've had made for it. Uh, I can't give you a, a timeline for that. Um, but, and then the next thing we want to mention is the event. It's our event. And I'll let Dan talk about that.
3: Um Yeah, you guys have been mentioned in other episodes, and and thanks for keeping that going. But uh, yeah, November 13th um, at noon of 2019, this year, we are throwing our first um, big Blade Runner event. And we have three special guests. We have uh, Paul Salmon, Charles Lazarica, and Joanna Cassidy coming. We're going to do a panel. We're going to screen the film all kinds of amazing stuff. Uh, We're selling lots of tickets. Um, The Nexus bar is also going on in that neighborhood. We're working with the, uh, the person that's running that bar to get some kind of coupon or deal for you guys. And that'll be retroactive. So you don't have to wait to get your tickets to our event. Once you have uh, your ticket, whatever we work out with him will be available to you. And, uh, yeah, we hope to see you guys there. We're certainly going to, you know, Patrick's flying out. Uh, Jamie and I are going to be there, and we'll have guests, friends, and family, and uh, lots of fans, and it's going to be a, a really good time. And, you know, we we if we can pull it off, we'd love to do it again next year, but it's only going to happen once in November of 2019. So go get your tickets. Once in a lifetime. Exactly. Blade Runner yeah, podcast. Blade Runner, Blade Runner podcast.com. we have set up our home page with the event right there and it'll link you to the Eventbrite page and uh, you can get tickets directly uh they're still on pre-sale discount for a few more weeks but then on august 13th they go up a little bit and it'll be our general admission price uh till until we run out so go get your tickets
2: yep thanks for listening everyone thanks, guys To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.